HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Someone is taking the time to break away and do their own thing. It's because they either have a specific point of view or a specific passion that really sort of speaks to maybe not a mass audience, but the customers that I have and the customers at Barterhouse tries to culture and, and cultivate, I think are, are, are those type of people who want that story and feel like if they take a, an allocation of an 80 case made wine, that they've got something special and it's something that only they have or maybe one other person has. So that's kind of what we specialize in. And, you know, it may not be business savvy to the nth degree, like we're not making 100,000 cases of Pinot Grigio and, you know, flogging them all over New York. But the customers that get wine from us are kind of believing the same stuff we do, which is supporting these small farms, supporting these young winemakers who have a passion for doing it. And, and we supply them with a market and we allow them to get their product out there to otherwise an untapped group of people. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Charlie Grosso, even though it's pronounced Grosso, spelled G-R-O-S-S-O. A wonderful photographer who I happened to stumble upon during a, reading the New York Times. It was a piece about an exhibition at a gallery that you run. Um, what's the gallery name again? I am the director of a gallery named Bang and Burn Contemporary. And I think it was during the Flesh and Bone exhibit that was printed a couple months ago. Um, then I started poking around the gallery and then saw you yourself are a photographer. Yes, I'm, I'm a photographer first and foremost before I'm a gallery director. Excellent. Oh, and I also wanted to l- use the line that you introduce yourself as uh, Charlie Grosso, a Chinese-American woman with a male Italian name. Yep. <laughs> 
kind of hilarious. Uh, and I can tell you, she is not a male Italian. She's sitting right in front of me. She's definitely of what she says. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this gallery. You, you put on exhibitions. Um, also, during some of these exhibitions, Friday night dates, uh, there were these paired menus. Yes. Um, this season for, for our fall lineup, we did we condensed our fall season into six weeks and did something a little unconventional. Yeah. Instead of presenting one show for the duration of six weeks and continuing on, we condensed our entire year of programming into six weeks. <laughs> we did six shows in six weeks. We had an opening for a brand new show every Thursday night. Yeah. And then we did another 10 additional events and programmings on top of it. So in the duration of six weeks, I produced 16 events altogether. And uh, on Friday nights, we had what was called a Friday night art date. Um, It's an intimate dinner of 12 um, with our artists. So you get to sit down and have dinner with our artists in a far more intimate setting than a regular art opening event. Yeah. Um, chat with them, see, you know, just to get to know them as a person and, you know, talk to them more about their process if you're interested in that. That's what we hope um, to do on this show. Exactly. <laughs> um, what influences them, what they love, and have an incredible meal to go with it. Yeah. And uh, the caterer that we hired, Regan Sage of Regan Cooks, um, she very masterfully paired, um, invented, I should say, created menus that paired um, with the theme of each exhibit. Very cool. What was your last exhibit and what were the pairings of the menu? Um, our last show is of, um, it's called Of Faith, Power, and Glory. And it's presenting um, paintings by Mary Yarnofsky and photography by Michael Kirchhoff. It is very Russian Eastern Bloc um, inspired work. Yeah. And so the menu was, uh, we started with anarchist spiced nuts. <laughs> well, what is an anarchist blend? Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah. You're going to have to ask my caterer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had potato latke with smoked salmon and sour cream. Very Russian. Yeah. And uh, a spiced lamb tagine. And we topped it off with a gilded chocolate cake. Awesome. Yeah. So you get this multi-sensory, um, you know, understanding of the art, the artist. And Absolutely, the and and just to you know, to to kind of level the playing ground a little bit. There's exquisite food to go with it, yeah. which you know always um, always makes the conversation go a lot easier. And you know, and and that's one thing that I really I find fascinating about food. It's yeah. such a irrespective of you know religion, race culture economic status it's um it's such a common denominator for for us all yeah which is the perfect segue into walk the dog um i felt lucky upon poking around your gallery website not only to find that you're a photographer but that you've been doing this project for how many years i've been doing walk the dog for 14 years now excellent and let's let's spell this out it's walk w-o-k the dog um born in taipei um, you were kind of scared of the marketplaces there. I was. When I grew up in Taipei in the early 80s, there was not um, clean supermarkets. It was all traditional old-fashioned markets. And my mom used to take me to them, and I would be three feet tall and scared shitless. There would be 
big burly men with dead chicken, live chicken, dead fish, live fish, yeah. almost dead fish, almost live things wiggling around and poking and making noises. It was dark and was bloody and there was just blood and water on the floor. It was crowded and, and I psyched myself out and I convinced myself that if I got lost in the market, the butcher was going to catch me, put me in a cage and sell me. Excellent. That's a great childhood fear to have. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I write Hansel and Gretel too many yeah, times. Yeah. But. So what, when did you live in Taipei until? I lived in Taipei until 90, 91. Yeah. And how often did you freak in the markets? I'm assuming your mother went to get food for dinner and sustenance. And, and, and it was something that had to be done every day. Like we only bought for the day. Yeah. So my mom would go to the market every day. And when I was little, before I was in school, my mom would take me every day. Um, and then once I was in schooling age, then that kind of tapered off. Yeah. Um, on your website, you describe these markets as dark and full of pungent smells. I mean, aside from the obvious, you know, dead, alive, blood, etc., what other senses, what other smells and visuals did you have being in those markets? Um, it's, it's such a contrast because you have, you have the, the tables that's being lit up by all the fluorescence and incandescence and, and, the, and the fish reflecting the light. Yeah. You know, the silveriness of the fish reflecting the light, the water on it, the ice. And then you get into the butcher section, which is always tend to be darker. Um, it's darker. It's warmer lighting for some reason always. Yeah. And and then you have a barrage of smells from fish to chicken to raw meat to, to kind of this like indecipherable smell of produce to... Um, to fruit and there's also flowers being sold too. Yeah, it's just all kind of intermixed together, and of course they're constantly cleaning. So then you know all the blood and gets mixed in with the water that they're cleaning with. Yeah. So it's it's a. I have been through now 21 countries and 82 cities, um, and I can't even tell you how many markets. The smell never really changes. Yeah, it's just everything at once. It's just kind of like lifeblood, this cycle of, like you're saying, you know, uh, live, dead, cleaning over and over again. It's kind of a onerous place. It's amazing. Yeah. So 21 countries. Yes, 21 countries so far with another 19 to go. Wow. Oh, so you actually have this all mapped out. Um, more or less. I As I... um as the project becoming more and more clear in my head of what it is. And as it grew over time, um, I'm, I'm finally at that place where I'm, I have a very clear vision of what I want it to be. Yeah. Um, which ultimately will result in a book. Excellent. Well, so you left Taipei in 91. Um, where did you move to, to New York? I moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. And then it was introduction to giant supermarkets <laughs> and, yeah. you know, pink and plastic. Well, L.A. also has a lot of open air, too, and, you know, freeway oranges and not to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that was also like freeway oranges is definitely something that was new. Yeah. But yeah. that didn't freak me out as much. Yeah. So, I mean, what was the contrast like? How how did you adjust to these 
big box supermarkets and bright colors and when I, I was much younger then and i don't think i thought too much about it yeah and the differentiation really came when you know the first few years um you know you started making friends who are not of asian descent and they would freak out when you know there's a whole fish on the table with head and all or yeah. you know shrimp with head on any any kind of animal that's being served with head on they will kind of freak out and in the beginning you're kind of like oh you're just a pussy yeah. <laughs> that's that's exactly how it's supposed to be yeah, yeah. like why are you freaking out i don't understand yeah but i'm sure you freaked out about stuff like seeing glowing orange velveta or you know easy cheese being sprayed out of the can yeah i didn't understand what that was all yeah. about <laughs> um and then so then you think you're tougher than them. You know, you're like, oh, I, un- I understand this whole thing. I got yeah. it all under control. But then you live in that culture for a few years. You shop in big box superstores and buying pink and plastic. And you never see the animal in its entirety. But this like geometric parsed out shape of protein. And then all of a sudden, like you catch yourself at Chinese banquets your relatives have. And be like, oh, that is a little gross, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and then you literally do a double take. You're like wait a minute, why am I freaked out? I used to make fun of my friends for freaking out. Yeah. And that's when you really start to kind of examine at what point did, like what is the juncture point in which you were okay with it and completely accepted the food on the plate was an animal to this slightly nauseated feeling of, wow, this is an animal, isn't it? So you decided to go back to Taipei and explore your childhood fear and this, you know, uh, non-cognizant sense of why you were pushing against it. Absolutely. So I went back when I was 18. I was just starting to learn photography. And so I went back and I took my camera and I wanted to see what, why I was so afraid. Yeah. So, and, and there was nothing about um, the landscape or the cityscape that I was interested in. I just want to go to the market. And my mom was like, why do you want to go take pictures of the stinky market? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I just do. I just want to go see it. So, so I went back year after year visiting my parents and my relatives. And, and I would shoot the markets year after year. Yeah. So that was kind of how the first seven years went by. <laughs> yeah, seven years just fly by. It really yeah. did. <laughs> it really did. And then, you know, fast forward to 2004. Yeah. And we, um, it was 2004. And I was submitting for a grant. And they had asked for a consistent body of work. Now, up to this point, I've been working as a professional commercial photographer. So it's, you don't really have like an overreaching vision on a sim, on a, on one single subject. Yeah. It doesn't feel like you. It doesn't feel stylistic sometimes. Exactly. And so as I was looking through the archive, I found these pictures and I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. I have like seven years worth of pictures on the same thing at the same place about the same subject matter so i started thinking more about that and uh and and why i was compelled to keep on returning very subconsciously yeah and um 2004 was also when um the bush administration had um put a ban on pentagon images of soldiers returning home from iraq of the bodies returning home from iraq i remember that one photo leaked of all the coffins clad in absolutely stars and stripes and yeah um and so this and and i was i was really you know i was really irritated and against the ban because i think when you don't see it 
when you don't have a visual with it, it starts to kind of lose its meaning. No, I mean, it's so true in photography that, you know, I, I feel up until a few years ago, same as with the food systems, it wasn't really apparent where food was coming from. And the more and more you hear people like Michael Pollan speak about it, the more and more you see imagery of these places and these people. And, you know, I work for edible magazines and they, they have brought a lot of that to light. I personally have been shooting in kitchens for 10 years and gone to see um, the origins of, you know, the final plates. And, Absolutely. But it's funny, you know, seeing these market images, um, I think people took that mindscape, that, that you know, idea of what a market was for granted uh here in the u.s oh absolutely and the and the thing the thing that's really interesting about the marketplace is that it's it's our oldest tradition yeah it's humanity's oldest tradition there was there was marketplace before there was anything else the minute we stopped being hunter and gatherers there was a marketplace what is it called in greek uh agora something like that Something mm. like that. My, my Greek is rusty, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think all Greek is rusty. <laughs> <laughs> so the marketplace being this, uh, you know, location where, you know, humans have to come to gather. And they still, in a sense, hunt, you know, for bargains, I guess. <laughs> um, but it is a part of living. It is a part of having to live to, you know, come and collect and gather this food in these spaces that are provided i mean it's not like we're out in the wild anymore no and and that's and that was the thing that's really fascinating about the marketplace so when back in 2004 i i realized i already had this body of work in progress and i chose to keep on doing it and expanding the scope of it and starting to travel um very heavily for it internationally um you know, at first I was still really focused on the object, you know, the, the dead fish, the live chickens, the animals. I was really, the first the work was really focused on that. And after a little while, I started looking beyond the object or the animal of it. And I started to look at the, the scene, the social interaction. What is this place and what does this place mean and what happens in this place? Um, and, and, and the work, the work kind of goes back and forth between those two, between those two extremes of being this moment in time of this place of these people to, um, to images of the animal as they were or as they are before they're dead. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating that you kind of say that because I feel like the food movement is in a similar place. It's. It's obviously about the people and the produce. And this uh, inherently, um, the ingredients and things shown are so much closer to the source than supermarkets. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. So, it, I mean, like, they, they, these things scream local to me because it's like, oh, yeah, they didn't travel too far to get that. And, you know, uh, you don't see any shipping crates. You just see these raw materials. Absolutely. And the project is interesting in so many respects. Um, because we could talk about it, you know, on just a food level. Yeah. We could also talk about it on a social economic level. Um, I was down in Cuba last year, and you really see the impact of 50 years of embargo. There's nothing there. Yeah. And then, you know, when I was in Mexico, I was in this little mountain village one day in the very southern border of Mexico. Everything was just fresh off the hill. 
And then all of a sudden I'm kind of presented with these um, red delicious apples from Washington <laughs> State. Yeah. You're like, wow, there, there's global commerce for you right there. Yeah. I mean, even seeing simple things like asparagus, um, you know, really up until a few years ago, a lot of it was sourced from South America. And then yes. we realized the Midwest and Michigan is ripe with it. And oh, yeah. so seeing that, you know, stamped to made in the u.s or grown in the u.s isn't just a marketing tool but it's an awareness now that uh absolutely things are here and it's not all sanctioned except you know then you get into this weird kind of social disparity of you know those who could afford to buy local and organic yeah. are of um middle class if not upper middle class whereas um in developing nations those who could afford to buy organics are those who are you know lower on the socioeconomic scale yeah and yet their um their counterparts in in the rising middle class emulates the west and wants to shop at supermarkets <laughs> yeah they have it all there right in front of them and yet they want to be like us it's 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 highly ironic to me especially and you definitely see this in china you know like a um a remark of a mark of being you know up and coming and and being well to do is being able to shop at places like Walmart or Costco or um Carrefour which is the European equivalent you know um of being able to shop at these western stores that are presented in very you know um clean sterile fashion yeah well, maybe if we get poorer as a nation, then we'll have better food. <laughs> just well, we're, gonna, our, we're just going to have to start growing our own at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. Just drop a caste system, go, you know, agrarian and, you know, uh, have good food once again <laughs> without having to worry about Yeah, we're just going to have to figure out how to grow things on our fire escape as New Yorkers. Oh, yeah. We, we are thrifty at that, even <laughs> though I have no direct sunlight. So it's like costas or raspberries. And um, I... You can grow the, a lot of mushrooms. Oh, yeah. No, I've been... I've been thinking about that. Um, that's kind of a wary thing for me. Uh, you know, having to forage out of my backyard and the Gowanus. <laughs> um, but I, I, I definitely have um, con- pondered and considered that. And then, you know, going to, I, I went to school in Boston. There were a lot of Asian markets up in the area I lived in. You can buy not only a patch of, you know, dirt, but also a small log with the mushroom spores in it and growing. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I'm sure you've seen that all around the world. That That's just amazing to me, really. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to take a quick break and try to travel around the world with you via Walk the Dog and all the markets that you've discovered. Maybe talk about the nicer things, like the great food you've seen and tasted. <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back.
and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Charlie Grosso, the photographer behind the Walk the Dog project about now 21 countries around the world. Yes, 21 countries and 82 cities. 19 countries to go. I'd love to see a map. Do you actually have a map on your website of where you visited? I don't. I could probably rattle off all the countries. Yeah, I do it. Um, Alphabetical order, though. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I could do <laughs> yeah. that. Um, I've shot the U.S., only the Fulton Fish Market down in New York City before they moved up to the Bronx. It was a sad day. It was. Yeah. It was a very sad day. I'm very, very lucky to have seen and shot Fulton before it was gone. Yeah. 106 years of tradition, I believe. Yeah, Peck Slip was. Yeah, if just research it. It's amazing. Exactly. Um, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Cuba... Colombia, um, Argentina, China. I did three trips through China, Tibet, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia, Taiwan, Japan, and where else? That's that's quite a hefty list. Um, I mean, they're obviously... Oh, are- India. India was, my, India was my latest trip. Oh, yeah? And then, okay, and then now we go back. We go back to... Um, Spain, Morocco, Egypt, and Jordan. Yeah. Did you just close your eyes to travel again through your mind to all these markets? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you should start giving tours of your Walk the Dog you know, project eventually <laughs> as well. But, I mean, there must be a common thread that brings you to these markets. It's not just the word market that you know makes you go there. What are you looking for? I'm looking to see how the locals deal with their food the presentation of it. Um, occasionally, I do look for the shocking, the unexpected. Um, I saw a camel for sale when I was in Morocco. Full out camel. Full out camel. Live camel. Um, no, it was dead. It was a camel head. Yeah. And it. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a it was a butcher shop, and they had camel for sale, and there was a camel head on a meat hook, right out front in front of the shop. Yeah. Um, the neck was still attached to it, so it wasn't just the skull itself. You know, fully still furry head. I mean, all together. You, yeah. It was it was really fresh. And then there's a uh, there was a food stall across the way from it. So I took pictures for a while, and uh, and then I sat down at the food stall across the way to have my breakfast, which was this pureed fava bean soup. I don't remember the name of yeah. it. Um, and I just sat there and watched this camel and people walking by. And then I started to notice that the camel's nose was running. Like, camel had a snotty nose, <laughs> and it was just slowly dripping down. Yeah. So that kind of tells you how fresh this camel was. Wow. It seems like a, a scene from Indiana Jones right before they eat the monkey brains. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, what other shocking things have you seen around the world? Um. I've seen dog for sale, of course, um, you know, given the project is called Walk the Dog. Yeah. I've seen dog in China. Um, I wouldn't say the rest of it being shocking. I would say the rest of it being like, oh, that's how it's done. Um, Regional. Yeah. Yeah. Like how um, frog is killed. Um, and I, I've seen I've seen women just literally have a frog in her hand and she's just cleaning and gutting it, and it's just part of the process. And she would, she would take a knife and she would hit it on the back of the head really quick, and then she would somehow dig her nails into some part of the frog, and then, and then she would be able to rip the entire skin off. Yeah, 
and you're like, whoa. And and sometimes the frog isn't dead. It's just stunned by having been hit over the head. But that's how the frog is, you know, skinned and dealt with. Yeah, that that would be an amazing technique and an illustrated guide to how to how to prepare. skin a frog. Yeah, how to skin a frog. <laughs> um, I saw um, I I saw whole goats being butchered, skin and butchered in India. Um, an entire goat um, skin butchered, cleaned in less than a minute. Like the time and speed in which it gets done is incredible. Yeah. Um, chicken being butchered again in India, and this man was using his. Um, the man put the, he put the knife in between his toes, and so he had both hands to maneuver it. It was the most incredible thing. Wow. Yeah. And again, like entire chicken, like cling to feathered in less than a minute. Speed efficiency. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, hearing of all these proteins and all this food, do you consider your work food photography? Not really. Yeah. I, I have been known as a meat girl, <laughs> but that's, you know. Oh, related to this project or just outside of just, just yeah, this project, you know? Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, that's the meat girl. Yeah. Because I've done events and panel discussions, and then at the end of them, after the presentation, I'll walk yeah. the dog. They, they just call me the meat girl. Yeah. I mean, maybe you got to go to Hawaii and, like, photograph poi and... You know, <laughs> fish and starches that are fermenting. and Except there's a ton of seafood in, you know, in the series. Yeah. There's, a, there's a ton of vegetables and yeah. and nothing that's like land animal related. Oh, those are side dishes. <laughs> yeah. So what's cool, too, is you still shoot film. I do. Yeah. Because Walk the Dog started when I was 18 and with a desire to keep it um, a certain amount of continuity. I still shoot film. I travel with a Hasselblad 501 with a 40 millimeter lens on it. Yeah. It's, it's a very wide lens for those of you not well versed in um, photographic gear. And so all the square images are shot on the Hasselblad. And then all the panoramics are shot on a Hasselblad X-Pan camera, which was a specialty camera Hasselblad created for a few years. Um, it is a non-distorting 35 millimeter camera shooting panoramic images it's, and it's beautiful i mean it doesn't vignette at all during the edges it's just kind of yeah striking it's it's gorgeous um a, a friend pointed out to me once that i've chosen two very non-intuitive uh formats to compose in what do you mean by non-intuitive the panoramic is really skinny it's hard yeah. to compose in that yeah um and and so is a square you don't you don't normally compose in a square you normally compose in a rectangle yeah so I, I I have absolutely chosen two very, you know, unique formats to compose in. And yet I'm so used to it that you hand me a regular 35 millimeter. And I'm like, um, yeah, fumble around. Can't I, I just need a minute. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is funny because you don't see much because of the digital error too. And like, you know, medium format backs being so expensive and um, 35 has made a lot of other things obsolete. Absolutely. Not even obsolete, but just so outreaching that you can't afford to be shooting those all the time. I also think it changes the way that we approach photography. Yeah. Um, I, I still like film and I prefer to shoot on film. I like, I think you have to trust yourself a lot more as an artist because you can't, you can't like fire off a frame and then look at the back to see if you've got it. Yeah. You just, you just need to stay in the moment and keep on going and you have to trust whether you got that or not. Yeah. No, it's a hard thing, you know, being a photographer, resisting um, 
looking at the LCD. Oh, yeah, absolutely, especially when it's there. Yeah, but I mean, I actually sometimes uh, turn it off when clients are over my shoulder. Yeah, like, oh, it's course. broken. I'm going to get it fixed this week. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's such a skill to say, if you need one shot, who are you going to hire? And I'd hire someone who was an analog photographer first, or that, you know, was in that era. Um, because most digital is shoot, pull away, shoot, pull away. Absolutely. And when I was working, you know, as a, as an advertising photographer, we shot Polaroids, you know, this was before digital, you know, became a full on force. We shot Polaroids and we looked at it, but, but that was always a guesstimate. Yeah. You know, you always knew that the the Polaroid will get you maybe like 80%, 90% there. And you still had like another 10% that you just had to trust yourself on. Yeah. So... Um, I like shooting film. I like shooting film through the markets. And, and I also think that they react to me differently because I have such a large camera on me. Yeah. True. It's, it's a hunk of steel. It is. That thing. Similar photographers um, in influence. Sebastian Salgado, you mentioned as someone who you strive to you know shoot like. Um, I think he also carried around quite a piece of metal. Yes. And he, well, he was he was a Leica shooter for a really long time, but yeah. he would travel with multiple Leicas. Yeah, and those are distinct uh, cameras that, yeah. you know, people actually look at the Leica, look through the Leica trying to figure out what it is, where most digital cameras, people just look at like, oh, that's a junky digital camera. Exactly. And plus, Leica's a rangefinder, and, and you, need to, you need to be like a notch up on your game to, yeah. to, to shoot a rangefinder well. Diane Arbus. Diane Arbus shot with a rangefinder. She's definitely... Um, I, I definitely a big fan of her work. Um, Helmut Newton, Richard Avedon, yeah. Irving Penn, they, they, they heavily influenced my commercial work. Well, a rangefinder slows you down, too. It does. And that's what's so great about this project and, you know, your topic and this kind of a food scene in general is that I think it is something that has to uh, slow you down. Like, you can't just run through a market and absorb everything. And what you're doing it by revisiting and by shooting in these um, larger formats or with larger cameras. Nearly obsolete formats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it's it's paced you in a way that shows that you're there and spend time there and understand it. Yes. And I, I, also, I also work very differently. Um, when I travel for these trips, I, I backpack. So, which means that I, I'm staying at hostels and guest houses. Um, I travel with two backpacks weighing in at no more than 50 pounds yeah. together. So that's everything. Clothes, toiletries, cameras, film, everything. Um, and I I only go out in the field with one lens on each body. And I, I'm pretty consistent on what I take. It's a 40 millimeter for the Hasselblad and the 45 on the X pan, which is, is, is basically a regular 50. Yeah. Um, I packed two other lenses just as a backup in case something goes wrong in the field. Um, but I don't, I don't change up lenses. I don't, I, I give myself a certain set of parameters. This is what it is. Yeah. And, and you just work within those parameters. If you want a shot that you need a 200 millimeter lens for and you don't have it. Oh, well, yeah. No, you, you just work within these confines, and and I think um, I think it's actually liberating. Yeah, well, I don't even think it's confines. I think you develop some kind of system, some kind of workflow, and that's what works for you. 
Exactly. But, you know, uh, people like options. Yeah. People like options of, oh, but I have five lenses on me and yeah. I could, you know, pick right. and choose. And I travel with three but use two. Exactly. My macro and then, you know, a workhorse of a 2.8, which is like a, I think it's like a 28 to 70. Nice. And that, that's about it. If someone wants on Elf, yeah. I can go and rent that specific piece of equipment. But I know what I exactly. like to work with. Yeah. Um, before we're, we can keep on talking about this for <laughs> hours. Camera but, gears. Well, not just camera, but these markets. I, I There's so much information. And this is a project that people must see. Um, and it's on your website, charliegrosso.com. Um, walk the dog. But if there was one place that people should go to in the world, a market that kind of just says it all, where should they go? Anywhere in the world? Wow. That's um, that's a big question. Yeah. Because you've barely traveled. And, yeah. <laughs> um. You know, for those who don't travel a lot, I would say go down to Chinatown, you know, not not because I'm Chinese American, yeah. but I think I think how they deal with food is so honest that if you could get over the squeamish factor of it and just really see it for the honesty it presents and it is present, um, that that's definitely a window onto the rest of the world. Um, I've seen incredible things everywhere. Yeah. Um, Barcelona, Adam... Uh, Market Bocoria in Barcelona was was a was a very honest approach. Was a first world interpretation on keeping tradition. Everything was fresh, but nothing was hidden. Yeah, it was still small vendors, and you could tell it was family run business. But there was some refrigeration offered. The amount of ice of things on ice was a ton. Meats were in these meat lockers where it's see through, so you could see the meat you know, in entirety on the, on hooks behind, you know, refrigerated meat lockers. So it's, if there's concern for sanitation as there can be in traditional markets, Barcelona offered it in a, in a first world way. Yeah. Well, with transparency, that isn't just saran wrap. Exactly. Um, exactly. It's it's an amazing project, and um, I hope I get to travel to some of these <laughs> markets. Thank you again, Charlie, um, Chinese-American woman with a male Italian name. Check out her website. Check out Walk the Dog. And, uh, yeah, travel around the world and check out some markets. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Thanks uh, for listening. Have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. On December 17th, Typhoon Sendong dropped over 180 millimeters of rain in less than 24 hours and caused severe flash flooding to the northern Mindanao region of the Philippines. The cities of Iligan and Cagayan de Oro City were hit the worst, and the area has suffered severe damage and human loss. 654 people have been claimed dead, hundreds more are missing, and nearly 100,000 Filipinos have been displaced after the floodwaters destroyed everything in its path during the late hours of the night. The city's power and water supplies were shut down for nearly 24 hours, and many Filipinos need your help. Xavier University is accepting donations to help those in need. Please visit www.sendongrelief.org for more information. That's www.sendongrelief.org. Dong Relief dot org.